James chapter number one tonight. You might be saying, preacher, I, we read all those prayer requests. Aren't we going to pray? We are going to pray. I promise you. Uh, but when I do announcements, I normally have us read our text and then, then we pray and ask God's favor on those, uh, announcements or those, uh, rather those requests. So, uh, we'll get into our message this evening. James chapter number one. And, uh, let's begin reading in verse number one. James chapter number one and verse number one. We'll read down to verse number sixteen. The Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, I'll raise my hand to that, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. These prayer requests that have been given, Lord, uh, they, they, many of them have escaped my mind, but there's not one of them that has escaped your attention. So I pray that you'd minister to them your will. Give us patience. Help us as the scripture exhorts us to let patience have a perfect work. And may we trust you in these matters and bear one another's burdens, so fulfilling the law of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice with me tonight verse number 16. After all of the counsel that James has given over these 15 verses, he closes this sort of series of thought with this cautionary word. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought. Do not err. Now, the key to understanding any portion of Scripture, first and foremost, is to determine the context. If you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. And so when you read the Word of God, it's important fundamentally that you first and foremost try to understand the context, understand who is pinning it down. We understand that all this is by the authorship of the Holy Spirit. But God did not uh, snuff out men's personalities and their experiences and their situations when he used them to pin Scripture, but rather did so in concert with those things. So learning who pinned down a Scripture is key to understanding it, understanding who it is written 
written to, when it is written, what some of the events that are that are surrounding and framing this passage are. And so when we read this passage of Scripture, the very first thing the Holy Ghost does is set it like a precious jewel in a setting so that we can understand something about what James is speaking of. Verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, who is the author of the book of James? It is not either of the James that were apostles, but we understand that it is James that is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the James that features so prominently in the book of Acts that was so instrumental in the church at Jerusalem. And he writes this epistle, and the question has to be asked, why did he write it? Most people, when they write a letter, they got a reason for writing the letter. And uh, every once in a while, you'll get a letter in the mail from some entity or some business. You might get one from the IRS. I promise they ain't, they ain't writing to find out how Aunt Lodi is doing. Amen. They've got business with you, and that's why they're writing to you. Well, James has business with these people, and he's writing to them for a distinct purpose. Who are the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad? Well, we understand that he probably has in mind the 12 tribes of Israel. But we don't have to go very far in Scripture when we study the life of James to find out more particularly who he's speaking of. James, if we could use the term pastor, maybe use the term elder, he was instrumental. He was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. That church at Jerusalem had swelled to thousands in size. But then something happened. After Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church, was murdered and martyred, there was an intense persecution that came against the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us about it. It says Saul was consenting unto his death, Stephen's death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Think about it a moment. Here's James, a man who's gone from pastoring thousands to now being by himself with only him and his companions, him and the other apostles. He didn't lose that pastor's heart just because the people were scattered, but he's still burdened for them. And so the Holy Ghost puts pen in his hand and he writes this epistle to try to encourage these believers who have been persecuted and scattered to the wind. That's the reason he opens this epistle talking about divers temptations. Now, we'll talk more about this before we're done tonight. But one of the interesting things, you know, the best dictionary for the Bible is the Bible. The best commentary for the Bible is the Bible. It's better than any work of human invention or human uh, ingenuity is the word of God itself. And you might ask yourself, well, preacher, what does he mean by temptations? And interestingly enough, the word temptation has two sort of connotations in Scripture. It can mean the solicitation to do evil. That's how we think of the word tempted, right? I was tempted to do something wrong. And James will, in fact, use the word in that way later on in this passage. But there's another sense in which the word temptation can be used. We could use the word trial or affliction. We might use the word figuratively of a storm, somebody going through a storm in their life. And certainly James is writing to a group of people that are going through affliction. They've been driven, rooted out of their homes, scattered, nowhere to go, no help, no home, no support system. And he's writing to these individuals. That, by the way, is another reason this is what we call a general epistle, because it's not written to a specific address, but it would have many copies been made and circulated throughout bodies of believers to encourage them during this time of deep trial and trouble. 
When we think about the time of temptation in a person's life, we begin to understand why James closes this portion of Scripture with that warning. There's three things I'd say about it before we get into the preaching. The time of temptation, number one, it is a time of distress. It's a time when things ain't going well. I hope everything's going swimmingly in your life. I hope you don't have a problem uh, that is within a 100 miles of you. But if you're like most people, you're facing some semblance, some measure of trial or difficulty. You may not be experiencing what they experience. I've never experienced what they experience. But the same counsel that James gives to them in their temptation or their trial is fit for you and I in our trial as well. It's a time of distress. Number two, it's a time of decisions. They say, what do you mean, preacher? Uh, well, I mean this, that just because you're going through a hard time, that don't mean you don't still have to navigate life. And it doesn't mean you don't still have decisions to have to make. Oftentimes, in the midst of trials, we don't have less decisions to make. We have more decisions to make. And so that's why, and I'll give you a third one and then preach. Not only is it a time of decisions, but it's a time of great danger. Anytime we have decisions to make, it's a time of great danger. Because we can always choose a wrong path instead of a right path. We can always go the wrong direction instead of going the right direction. James understands that his people whom he has loved and pastored, they're in a time of distress. They've been scattered from their home. They're in a time of decisions. They have to decide what their family's going to do and, and what they are going to do. And because of that, they're in a time of great danger where Satan will seek to prey upon them and to exploit the instability of their situation. And so in this passage of Scripture, he gives them five truths that they need, five things they need in times of distress or tribulation or trials. And he's counseling them not to err when he gives them these five things. I think if you commit yourself to these five things in the midst of a trial, that you likewise can be assured that you'll find the will of God and do the will of God. I want you to notice them with me and we'll be done tonight. Look at verse number two. James opens by saying this, my brethren, so we know he's talking to believers, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. By this he means trials, difficulties. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, the first thing he says you need if you're going through a trial, I need this, you need this. If your life is in disarray, if your life is in distress or in difficulty, if you find yourself faced at a crossroads, I'll tell you the first thing you need is you need patience. I didn't think I'd get a lot of help on that. (laughs) That's okay. Let me say it this way. He counsels them to a steadfast patience. You got to give God time to work. Most of our problems in life come from dragging our feet with God or running ahead of God. We're like the little boy in a parking lot. My youngest one, we have to get on to him and and have to get after him. He's bad about this. I mean, the second his feet hit that asphalt, he wants to run. And we always grab him and scold him and and fuss at him. and, And because we know if he's not careful, he will heedlessly charge into danger Because he doesn't have the wisdom to know how to navigate appropriately. You know, we do the very same thing. Nothing has ever been hurt by waiting on God. Now, there's been things that have been hurt by dragging our feet on God. Jonah's a good example of that. He finally obeyed, but boy, it was a painful finally. But nobody's ever been the worse for saying, Lord, I'll wait on you as long as I need to wait. 
he describes two things in these verses. One, he describes the process of patience. This is painful, man, but it's the truth. Patience only comes through the trying of your faith. It doesn't come through easy times. It doesn't come through comfortable times. It comes when your faith is put to the test. And so if your faith is tried, one of the things you can be confident in is that God is cultivating patience in your character. You ought to look for opportunities to exhibit patience. And the best way you can exhibit it is by not rushing God and just trusting the Lord. He talks about the process of patience. Number two, I like this phrase. I almost said he talks about the patience of patience, but I didn't want to be too cute. He talks about the perfect work of patience. He says this, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, some of our problem is not that we're patient, uh, not patient. We, we are patient. We're just not patient with our patience. We don't mind to be patient for a little while. But pretty soon our patience, here's a term that we use a lot, it wears thin. And, you know, a great many people, spiritually minded, will say, Lord, I'll wait on you. And they do. They do exactly what they promise. They wait a good three, four, five minutes before they want to rush to make God's decision for him. You know, patience is of no effect unless we commit ourselves to the God of providence and patiently wait on him to do for us what we cannot do ourselves. There are things you'll never be able to do. God will have to do them for you. And even if you could do something, what you do would not be worth doing. It'll take God doing it. And so the first thing he counsels them to is a steadfast patience. He says, don't get jumpy on God. You're not, hey, listen, ain't none of us in such a hurry that we can't wait on God. If you think that it, that you're wasting time, you just get ahead of God. You'll find out what wasting time is. I mean, you look, mm, I might preach just for a moment here. I don't know. You know, Moses got a little impatient on the Lord. God made clear to Moses that he was going to be the one that would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt when he was a young man. Acts chapter number 7 tells us that whenever he strove against that Egyptian, he slayed that Egyptian. He expected that that would spark a revolution with himself at the head of it. He, he, he wished not that his people could not understand, that the Israelites could not understand how that God, by his hand, would deliver them out of Egypt. So you know what wound up happening? He spent 40 years on the backside of the desert learning patience. You think, hey, listen, you say, preacher, I ain't got time for patience. You ain't got time to be impatient. You need God to lead. You need God to direct. You need God to take the helm. So a steadfast patience. Look with me at verse 5. He says this, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given. Only liberal thing about God. Somebody say, <laughs> not only do we need a steadfast patience, number two, we need a seeking of wisdom. You know what? You and I don't have wisdom. Now, here's what I mean by you and I don't have wisdom. I don't mean we may not possess any. I mean, if we have any, it didn't come from us. It, we may have sensual wisdom, devilish wisdom. But if we have the kind of wisdom we need, that kind of wisdom only cometh from above, from the Lord. And so the kind of wisdom that we need, James points them to the fact that, number one, it's essential. If any of you lack wisdom, he doesn't say, if any of you lack wisdom, go ahead and do it anyway. Hopefully it'll work out. He doesn't say, if any of you lack wisdom, go ahead and do your best, and the grace of God will make up the difference. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, stop everything you're doing and ask God for it. Tells me this, man, we need wisdom. We don't have wisdom. 
But we need wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Well, I, you know, there's been a lot of definitions given to wisdom. And I think probably a good simple one is this, that, that wisdom is knowledge, particularly spiritual knowledge, that is spiritually applied. It is taking the knowledge of God and from God and applying it spiritually to our lives in an appropriate way. And so we need wisdom. It's not intuition that will get us through. It's not your gut. It's not your heart. It's not your, it's not your nose. It's not your, your mind. It's the wisdom of God that can direct the course of your life productively and appropriately. I've done it before. You probably never have. But I've, I listen, I, fools rush in and I've done it before. I've been the person that just said, well, if God won't tell me, I'll just make my own decision. What a mess it made in my life. We need the wisdom of God, man. You need the wisdom of God. Anybody that claims that they have everything figured out, all they've done is confess that they have less figured out than they'd like to think they do. We all need God's mind about things. The decisions you and I make in life, it's not enough. Hey, listen, I don't know about you, man. I, I got little ones, and, and they're going to spend eternity somewhere. I ain't got time to go by my gut. I, I, ain't, got, I ain't got room to go by intuition. I got a church family that, that 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 I'm leading, and I've got a wife that I'm leading, and I've got friends that are counting on me, and I've got loved ones that need me. There ain't room for me to try this thing out. There ain't room for me to figure my way through. I need God's mind about things. Wisdom, man, wisdom is essential. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, and the wise man said, yes, sir. Then he says, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And I like this last phrase, it shall be given him. Now, I wish it had said a brand new Silverado right before that, but it didn't. And Creflo Dollar's Bible says that, but mine doesn't. But wisdom, he says, if you'll ask, God will give it to you. He tells me this, wisdom is essential, but wisdom's available. It's available. Amen. We need wisdom, and guess what? We can have it. It doesn't say that if we will apply ourselves to great learning, that we can gain it. It does not say if we read everyone's uh, self-help books, <laughs> the guy down at the airport, you know, <laughs> having his... no. All we have to do is just ask the Lord, the God of all wisdom, the fount of wisdom, the source of wisdom, the epitome of wisdom. And guess what? He's the one that hears your prayers. He's the one that loves your life. He's the one that saved your soul. And if we'll just ask him, he'll give us wisdom. Tells me this. There's no excuse for a fool. I'm going to say it again. There's no excuse for a fool. If we're foolish, it's pride that's led us there. Because we were unwilling to seek the wisdom that God has on offer to you and to I. So he mentions a steadfast patience. Number two, a seeking of wisdom. But then verse six, he gives a little bit of qualification to the, to the challenge that he just gave him. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But, he says, there is something that could cause you to not get that wisdom. He says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We need a steadfast patience. We need a seeking of wisdom. But number three, we need a stable faith when we're going through trials. Now, people have, I think, a funny idea about this passage of Scripture. I'll tell you how people, I think, misinterpret it. I'll tell you what I believe the Bible is saying here. Some people believe that having faith is a matter of standing in front of the mirror and grunting real hard and staring your unbelief down and resolving yourself to whatever uh, hope and dream that you have that it will come true. 
There's people that that's what they think faith is. They think it's putting words in God's mouth and getting mad at God if God doesn't perform them. And that's how the prosperity preachers preach, is that you can just tell God what he's going to do and, and he'll do it. He's the cosmic butler. We just let him know, give him a list, and he'll, like Santa Claus, he'll, he'll, he'll uh, <laughs> I was looking around to see if they're kids. I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I was in a preaching service one time. Man, I'm turning into an old man. I'm telling stories. I was in a preaching service one time. Full of kids, chock full of kids, and preacher got up and he said something about Santa Claus not being real. And you looked around the room and you could see just the utter stricken faces of so many of the kids. And the, <laughs> one of the fellows turned around and said, he's just kidding, kids. It's okay. <laughs> Listen, don't make fun of kids believing in Santa Claus. There's people think the election wasn't stole. There's people think Joe Biden got 83 million votes. <laughs> And they got driver's licenses, some of them, you know. And uh, But some people think that that's, that's how God is. I just give him a list of what I want and demand it, and he's going to give it to me. No, that's that's not what having faith means. Uh, faith is, a, is outflowed from the authority of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Think about what a heretical notion it is that I could speak through faith and demand that God do something. What I'm really doing is making myself the author of Scripture by suggesting that. No, rather faith is me saying God promised this and I believe God is true and I believe he always keeps his promises. So here's what I think this is talking about. I don't think it's saying, well, I know this trial is going to end this way and I'm going to maintain a firm confidence that it's going to end this way. And if it doesn't, it's because I didn't maintain faith that it would end this way. I don't think that's what it means. Notice the language used here. Nothing wavering. What does it mean to waver? Well, how would we use that in anything else? If someone was making a decision, if you were going to go out and buy a vehicle because you were a billionaire and, and you could, and, and you were going to go out and buy a, a mid-sized compact vehicle uh, for $180 million right now, and you were praying about whether to do that, and you were wavering on that decision, and you were saying, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't, we would consider someone to be wavering if they were floating in between various things. You know what the double-minded man does? He says, I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to wait on God. And then he says, maybe I won't wait on God. Maybe I'll just do it my way. And then he says, no, God's way is the right way. I'm going to commit myself to trust in the Lord. And then he says, well, maybe God will let me down. And maybe I need to take this matter into my own hands. You see, the thing that the unstable man is wavering in in this passage is in trusting God in the midst of his trials. It's in saying to himself, I don't know if God will take care of me. And here's what James says. Go ahead and settle your mind that God's way is the right way. That you want nothing else, nothing less than the will of God. That you're willing to wait on God however long it takes. That you're willing to trust God no matter what you experience. That you're willing to seek God no matter what it costs you. That you want God above all else in your life. That's what he's encouraging them to in two areas. Number one, in our prayer life. He says this, when you pray and ask for God's will and mind about a matter, don't turn around and then run off and make your own decision about it. Instead, commit yourself to get the mind of God. Don't pray and say, now, Lord, I want your will about this. And then say, well, he didn't answer me in 20 seconds. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want. No, he says, commit yourself in your prayer life to a stable faith. Number two, not only in our prayer life, but in our daily life. He says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says, if you're willing to to turn about in trusting God, you'll turn about in everything else in your life. 
You know, the only thing that moors us as, as individuals is our faith in the Lord and our relationship to Him. It's often astounding. The thing that I wonder at is not that the world is such a mess, but that it's not worse of a mess. You imagine being a lost man and having to navigate through the world with no light, with no Spirit of God within you, with no confidence in the Word of God to guide you. It's no wonder the world is is, is schizophrenic in its perspective and in its worldview. It's no wonder the world is in shambles. But listen, as a believer, you don't have to be that way. You can commit yourself in your daily life that you're going to trust the Lord. We need a stable faith. Then look at verse number 9 with me. He says this, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. I'll tell you what you need in the midst of your trial. You you need a steadfast patience and a seeking of wisdom, a stable faith, but you need a spiritual perspective. You've got to learn to view your trials through the lens of God's word. He says this, there's two types of people. There's those of low degree and those that are rich. And undoubtedly, James is saying this because he understood that that was the way of, of his congregation. And and by the way, it's why we ought to praise God that there is still a vestige of a middle class. That has not typically been the case throughout human history. And he says, it don't matter if you're poor, if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're well off or if you're struggling. Everybody has something to praise God for when they go through trials. And he points to the fact that trials ground us. He says it adjusts our perspective when we go through trials. He says it adjusts the perspective of the brother of low degree because he realizes that he has been exalted. You know, whenever you go through a trial, one of the things that it ought to make clear to you is that your life is worth Satan trying to afflict. That your life is worth, you know, the brother of low degree that already has a spirit of humility about him. He looks at it and says, hey, praise the Lord. Like the disciples did when they were beaten for their witness and testimony. They went away rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer in his name. You know, it helps us to understand that when we're going through trials, and it doesn't mean every trial is is always some spiritual persecution and affliction. I don't know about you. I, I've had a lot of messes I've made for myself. But, but when we know that we're going through a trial, when we know that affliction is set in, it ought to encourage us to know, hey, we're doing something right, or we wouldn't be going through this. So he points to how trials ground us. For the brother of low degree, it, it rejoices him. But for the rich, it humbles him. Makes him realize that a lot of the things that he had counted to be to be stabilizing in his life and meaningful in his life can be ripped away at a moment's notice. It's funny, you know. We're, we're I tell you, Christians are having to start to to. How do I say this? We live in a time where Christians are learning that the gold dollar was never what that that the gold standard was never what provided stability for them. And it's amazing how scandalized believers are at the notion that they'd have to go to God to meet their needs. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I, I want as much stability in my life. If you've got a problem with money, just go ahead and give me yours. That's fine. I'll, t- I'll take the burden off of you. And I'm not trying to be high-minded, and I'm not trying to be spiritually, uh, you know, anesthetized to the realities of the world that we live in. But it's amazing. It's as though believers have finally begun to realize we're going to have to trust God. And some of them are looking around and saying, what are we going to do? (laughs) Well, you're going to trust God is what you're going to do. Because what do you think this thing was all about? Amen. 
And, you know, in our lives, here's what it, it makes the person realize that if you have any semblance of stability in your life, man, it's not because of some person. It's not because of your bank account. It's not because of your good health. Uh, it's not because of your smarts and your wits. It's because the good God of heaven has blessed you and provided for you. He points to how trials ground us, but then he points in verse 12 to what trials gain us. He says this, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. A lot of people like to look at these crowns, teach on them, preach on them and everything. I guess I've probably done it. I don't know. I forget what I preached on Sunday. But uh, there's a lot I could say about this. Here's two things I'm going to say about these crowns. One, anything from the Lord is a blessing. Anything from the Lord is a blessing. And if the Lord gives us a crown of life, that's a blessing. And then number two, I would say this, you know, the Bible describes a scene in the book of Revelation where the people of God are taking their crowns and casting them at his feet. And I wonder where they got them crowns. They got them from living some of the testimonies that Scripture talks of. And you say, preacher, what would I do with a crown in heaven? You'd cast it at his feet and you'd be thankful you had it to cast. But that comes, the crown of life at least, comes to those that have endured temptation, trials, afflictions. You can't get it any other way. It's the only, it ain't a participation trophy. It's something you only get by going through some things. And there are some things that your trial will gain you that can be gained in no other way. I see in this passage that we need a spiritual perspective. And finally, and I'm done. I'm sorry Jerry took so much time earlier, folks. It's just nice to have somebody to blame. Amen. Normally I can't blame nobody but me. Verse 13. Look what it says. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Whoa, wait a minute. James just got through spending 12 verses talking about how our temptations the Lord has put us in. He's got through telling us how that it's for God to purge and perfect us and to cultivate our faith and, and patience. So why would he then say in verse number 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Well, again, the best dictionary for your Bible is the Bible. The best commentary for your Bible is the Bible. And it's apparent from the earlier verses that when he speaks of temptation, he's speaking of afflictions. But obviously, he's using it in a different way here. I wonder if we can go to the Bible to find a definition. Well, verse 13 says, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Well, look right there. There's a definition right in your Bible. So here he's using the word tempted. And here it does mean the solicitation to do evil. He goes on to say, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You know the fifth and final thing you need when you're going through a trial? You need a sanctified resolve. You better keep things tight. Because when everything goes sideways, if you're not careful, you'll do things you would have thought you'd have never have done. We make excuses for ourselves. I ain't preaching about you. I'm preaching about this preacher tonight. When things get tough, I start to go easy on myself. When things get difficult, I start to make excuses for myself. And I will do things in the midst of affliction that I would never do when I'm on the mountaintop. And that's true for you as well. He points to two truths here. I want you to notice them. First, he points to the source of temptation. You know what we say to ourselves? You don't say this. You're more spiritual than me. You know what I say? When I'm in the midst of affliction, I say to myself, Well, it's God's fault that I'm going through this. So I should be allowed to indulge in whatever it is 
that I'm tempted with. I mean, God put me in this situation. How can he get mad at me? I'm just flesh. I'm just dust. How can he get mad at me? He put me in this situation, so I ought to be allowed to. Well, let's stop and examine that for a moment. What really is the source of temptation? Now, listen, God may be the source of your trials, but he is never the source of your temptation in the sense of your solicitation to do evil. The Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, why does he say it that way? Because God ain't going to put you something that, through something that he can't go through. Because everything you go through, he goes through with you. So he ain't going to put you through something that he can't go through with you. He can't be tempted with evil, so he ain't going to tempt you with evil. So where does it come from? What is the source of temptation? Well, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You know, there might be a lot of people that abandon you in the midst of your trials, but frustratingly, your flesh never will. Your flesh will be your best friend in the midst of your trials. He'll be right there with you making excuses for the things that you desire to do. And the reality is, it ain't God that put you in that situation to be tempted. It's you that put you in that situation to be tempted. And your flesh will lie to you and say, well, God orchestrated this. Hey, God orchestrated your trial, but he didn't put you in a place to face sin or temptation. We see the source of temptation. But then here's the more important thing. He points to the course of temptation. He says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Isn't that interesting? He talks about sin as a child. Once it is committed, it is conceived. And then it lives and dwells within a person until finally it takes manifestation outwardly. But when that sin is born, it's not life that's born, it's death that's born. And it bringeth forth death into your life. It bringeth forth death into your life. I, I You know, it, it's a blessed thing that after a mother has a child, that God, through the nurturing and, and, and caring for that child, probably softens some of the trauma of the birthing experience. Probably, if you asked most women, right in the midst of contractions, if having a child was a good idea, you might get some varied answers relative to the strength of the epidural. <laughs> I learned long ago not to ask people that just had surgery how they feel. It's a dumb question. Terrible. Somebody just cut me open and walked around inside me. I feel awful, preacher. You know, in that moment, whenever we're engaging in sin, we don't think about the birthing pains of the death that it'll bring into our life. But by then, it's too late. Just as the child doesn't start to exist the moment that it is born, it's existed from the moment of conception. So likewise, the sin has, has existed from the moment of lust conception. Began in the heart when you lusted after it and yielded to it. And then it bears forth the fruit of destruction in your life. So here's the truth. You in the midst of your trial, it may feel good to yield to sin for a little while. You might feel enough self-pity to excuse yourself to do it. But sooner or later, that sin's going to be birthed. And that destruction is going to take root in your life. And you're going to have to pay the toll for it. So you know what you better do in the midst of your trial? You say, preacher, I can't, I can't do anything unspiritual. I'm suffering. Suffering don't make you spiritual. Suffering don't make you spiritual. But preacher Job, yeah, but the rest of the Bible, 
A lot of people in the Bible, hey, listen, in the midst of their suffering, made terrible decisions. And you likewise could do the very same thing. Preacher, what do I need if I'm going through it right now? Well, you, you need to have a steadfast patience. Wait on God. You won't be the worst for it. You need to seek the wisdom of God. You can't make these decisions on your own. You need God's mind about matters. You need a stable faith. Make your mind up that God's way is the best way, the right way, the only way, and that you'll settle for nothing less than the will of God. You need a spiritual perspective. Hey, listen, go ahead. Take that mantle of victimhood off. It doesn't become a believer. We're not victims. We're victors in Christ Jesus. God help us to walk around like victims. What a a shame, what a disgrace that is. It's borderline blasphemy for us to walk around garbed like like a victim when God's given us the victory through Christ Jesus. Get a spiritual perspective. God's trying to cultivate some things in you. And you won't be the worst for going through a trial. God will make sure of that. If you'll, if you'll suffer in a godly manner, God will make sure of that and watch your life. Because if you're not careful in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, you'll yield to the other type of temptation and you'll allow sin into your life and you won't be the better for it. Hey, it won't, it won't help your trials. It'll heighten your trials. It won't make them better. It'll make them more bitter and make them worse. And let's make sure that as we suffer, we do it in a way that pleases the Lord and that we grow and that we become more spiritual. Hey, listen, what a tragedy it'd be to go through a trial and not get closer to God through it. Let's commit ourselves to it tonight. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. And I want to invite you to come. If God spoke to your heart about a matter, it must be important or he wouldn't have spoken to you about it. So why don't you meet him in this altar? Just let him have his will and way in your heart, in your life. It might have been one, some, all of the things that were mentioned tonight might have spoken to your heart, or it might have been something entirely different. But the Spirit of God made application of some truth in your heart and life. Why don't you meet him in this altar and just be honest with him, bear your heart to him. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.